Back to Philippians chapter 2, where we left off last time in our study of this wonderful book, a book that is really seemingly, from our perspective, a contradiction, as I mentioned last week, a book which is known to be a book of joy. Also, it's a book that is de details service, which, which normally we do not put in the same category, do we? And yet we find in God's ways are better than man's ways. We find the greatest joy often in the greatest service in life as we're used by, by the Lord. And we found so far in, chap in the chapter 1 into chapter 2 that maybe the central challenge of this portion is found in verse 27 of chapter 1 where it says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And we find that pivotal is a pivotal verse, but because up to this point, Paul is giving his testimony of his suffering for the gospel of Christ. And after this teaching, we find that standing for Christ and furthering the gospel is going to involve suffering, we're told, in verses 20 and 29. And it's because we are engaged in a conflict as God's children. We are saved out of this world. We're saved to be an ambassador to this world. And we are involved in a conflict for souls. Satan, whose desire is to keep the lost lost and the saved defeated, and God would use you and I to accomplish his will to save, save the lost and encourage, encourage the saved. And we're to do that with one mind and one spirit, we're told in verse 27. As we get to chapter 2, we find that in order to strive together, there must be togetherness. Let's read the first few verses here again. Verse 1, therefore, if there be if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only out for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And so we find here these instructions that, that no doubt link back to verse 27 where he says that uh, we with one mind, one spirit and one mind strive together for the faith of the gospel is what he then addresses in these verses. Uh, there must be togetherness in order to strive together to accomplish the goal that God has for us. And that's what this passage addresses. To the church at Philippi, to the church wherever it is around the world and to the believers in that church to contribute to this cause of togetherness for the cause of Christ. Now we find here that this also passage also involves, in order to accomplish that, involves humility, doesn't it? And that's why the next verses explain what humility looks like when it says in verse 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. This is how we accomplish this kind of selfless service. He's, and he, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took the form of a bondservant, and came in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so Jesus humbled himself to meet our greatest need. And he becomes the example of the attitude of unity and humility in these verses. You see... These first four verses are really the description of the, of the mind of Christ and what he produces in the church through the Spirit of God, a work which he began according to chapter 1, verse 6. He continues to do, and he wants to accomplish that humility 
that would fulfill these verses towards one another in the family. Now, verse 1 we saw last time. First of all, we saw the loving concern of the heart of Christ expressed through his children. We see this consolation in Christ, the comfort of love. We see the, the heart of Christ in the church family. In verse 2, we see the unity of the church family, of being, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord or one soul, of one mind. And we saw that last time, that the church is to have a unity of purpose that results from aligning themselves with the mind of Christ, which, of course, is to together affect the world for Christ. Then we get to chapter, verses 3 and 4 we left off last time, we find this, this, this humility expressed in preferential service towards one another. Just like Jesus did for us in verses five, as described in verses 5 through 8. And so in his mind that we align ourselves with is his heart that is to be lived out in this way. So let's look a little closer at these two verses this morning. The first, what we find in verses 3 and 4 is this, attitude, this idea of service, of serving one another. And by nature, we don't like to serve. It's not natural to us. Instead, we'd rather be served, or at least let others serve. You know, it often amazes me when you observe church families who, are no, who, who know Christ and are to have the mind of Christ, that there are, always, there are those who always seem to normally serve, and there are those who just don't. Those who have to grow in that, that mentality of service, because Jesus Christ, according to Matthew 20, 28, didn't come to serve to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And in his mind, that should dominate the church. And, and oftentimes that's expressed in simple chores around church or in service opportunities or in, in consideration of one another. It is that heart that God is seeking to produce in us. It is that heart that's being challenged here in verses 3 and 4, this idea of preferring and honoring and serving one another. And so in light of verse 27, what, we, what God is saying here, I believe, is that this should be normal. And if we don't have this normal expression of the preferential service towards one another in, a, in the church family, we're not going to be effective serving the needs of the unsaved around us and reaching them with the gospel. And God wants us to first be learning to living out the gospel dynamics in our life in order to share the love of Christ and become together effective in reaching the lost, because that's the idea here. God wants us to become effective together. Flip with me for a moment to Romans 15. Romans 15, just a little challenge, encouragement for us. And along these lines before we dig in a little deeper. Romans 15 says this. It says, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded towards one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God the Father and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see even here an idea of worship, bring glory to God, we find this idea of togetherness, of serving together, of unity and one-mindedness. It's a common theme throughout Scripture. It's not something we, do not, we naturally accomplish just because we belong to an organization. This is not organizational togetherness of mind and purpose. This is, this is organic. This is intrinsic. This is something the Spirit of God produces in the hearts of those who seek to align themselves with the mind of Christ, to allow Him, Jesus, to rule in our lives, hearts and lives that produces this, this willingness to serve others and put others first. And going back to Philippians chapter 2, in these two really very important verses, 
what we find here is this, is first of all, is Paul addresses the idea of competitiveness in the church. And we find here are, uh, is both don'ts and do's in each verse. Something we should not do and something we are to do in each verse. Verses 3 and 4 says, don't do it this way, but do it this way. Verse 4 says, don't do it this way, do it that way. And the first thing he addresses in verse 3, that nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Competitiveness in the church. The Greek inter interlinear translated this word rivalry, which ought not to be rivalry. The New American Standard Bible uses the word selfishness, and the old King James Version, I remember that version, used the word strife, which comes from those things. According to Vine's Dictionary, he defines this as ambition, self-seeking, rivalry. Self-will being an underlying idea in the word. Hence, it denotes, denotes party-making, in a sense. So there's an element of the word that denotes side-taking, party-making, side-taking, causing divisions that cause people to take sides. That's the, that's the intrinsic in this word. And we know that, in reality, the flesh, self, self-ambition, self-promotion, and so on, is at the root of most conflicts and divisions in, amongst believers. He also uses the word here, conceit, selfish ambition, and conceit. Well, we all know what it means to be conceited. Well, maybe you don't. I'm not accusing anybody of that. But we understand the word. And it means that I think I'm smarter than the average bear. And so, of course, things should be done my way. It's only normal, logical. Sometimes in our, our, our family discussions, arguments, I think they're fun. My kids come to the point where they say, you're, you just think you're always right. And I just tell them, I said, well, I'm not really dumb enough to argue when I'm wrong. <laughs> That's conceit, isn't it? It's always my way or the highway. And the Bible here says don't act on that, from that mentality, from that attitude. Instead, we should seek God's mind in the matter because really, in reality, Jesus is the head of the body, isn't he? He directs us individually. He directs us corporately as a church. And so what we seek is his wisdom rather than ours. Because in reality, when it comes to living this out in a church family, in the Church of Philippi is being addressed here, we need to recognize that we're all going to have different opinions. We all may disagree on ways to do things. And what the Bible is getting at in these two verses is, the, is that attitude that respects others' opinions and sometimes agree to disagree because ultimately it's God's will that matters, that we seek together prayerfully. It's God's will that we seek and we trust him to direct in the decision-making, in the leadership, in the corporate body, in those things, because it's his mind we seek. We, our, our, our self, opinionated self, takes a back seat, because when self and conceit drives the boat, God's will is seldom realized. It just isn't. It just isn't. And some people might think, well, we're doing things the best way, but are we doing things God's way? That's what's important. I think sometimes God's more interested in the process than he is in the end result, the decision in reality, because he doesn't really care what color the carpet is in the auditorium. And those are the kind of things that, that often drive competitiveness. And we all have our good reasons, great reasons, fantastic reasons, absolutely logical and sensible to me, but as a God's will we seek. And what he's saying here is don't operate from that, from that perspective in the church family. Don't, be, don't let things be done that causes strife or selfish, in, in selfish ambition and conceit. But we have a do here. We have the contrast. We have man's way 
which is how most organizations operate apart from the direction of the Spirit of God, apart from the intervention of God, apart from the wisdom of God, which is stated in the second half of the verse. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Now that's quite a contrast in reality because that doesn't come naturally either, does it? I sometimes wonder in this context if this could, we could apply this, or at least make an application to consider others smarter than myself. Well, that's kind of an ouch because few of us do that. Then at least it means we respect their ideas, their values, opinions, and their input as more important than mine. That's what it's saying here, as better. We consider them as better. And the word primarily here in a general sense is that others are more important than me. And so in the realm of how I invest my day and how I go about my business, whether it's my personal life and my church, we see others' needs as more important than mine. And that's maybe really what this is ultimately driving at. New American Standard Bible, if you have that, says that esteem or consider others as more important than yourselves. <laughs> you know, that we don't, we don't ever see it that way, do we? We sometimes serve when the important things in my life are accomplished, if that ever happens, and that's why it rarely does. But the, but the ESV says it even more pointedly when it says more significant than yourselves. That's even another interesting twist on the word, more significant. Now, this is real stuff. This is what God wants to produce in us. And we're not going to produce it on our own because self is interested in one thing, self, isn't it? And, my, and, and what people can do for me. And too often in the church there are people that are, that are moaning and groaning because people aren't ministering to me in my time of need. And that's self. And God says, and, and if we trust our God, we know he's going to send help when he thinks we need it. Instead, God wants to produce an attitude that says, your needs, no matter how much in despair I am, your needs are more important than mine, more significant than mine. That's something we are to consider. That's how we're to look at life in the church family. And the word esteem means to consider and to regard one another as more important than myself. This is a mentality. This isn't just an occasional act. We run around, okay, we did our duty. I, I did my service, now everybody can turn around and take care of mine. No, this is simply a love of Christ directed towards others that, that, is, that is considering, concerned about, compassionate about their needs. Now that takes the wind out of the sails of self-importance, doesn't it? But that attitude, that mentality produced by the Spirit of God in a family, in a church family, really is what minimizes or if not eliminates conflict. Because conflict always comes from, I want things my way. And when, when the Spirit of God gets a hold of believers to produce the mind of Christ as it's described in this passage, it creates an environment of fellowship where believers value and honor and prefer one another and who wouldn't want to be part of a family like that? It's wonderful, it's delightful. Remember when I was a little kid, there was a cartoon, I think it was called Chip and Dale. These two little squirrels, were they? I don't remember. Chipmunks? Chipmunks, thank you. Someone's as old as I am. Chipmunks, <laughs> that would say, they come to a doorway and they say, after you, no, after you, no, after you, no, after you. You know, and that's exactly what this is saying here. After you. It's a preferential treatment of one another. I'm not calling you all chipmunks, by the way, but that's the mentality in a simplistic 
kind of silly illustration. But what's required here in order to esteem others better, and I, I skipped over this in lowliness of mind. Humility required, isn't it? In lowliness of mind. That, and God recognizes that we must have that mind of Christ, that humility that Christ had in his service of lowliness of mind in order to act in this way. Someone has said, humility is not so much thinking less of yourself as, uh, as much as it is thinking of yourself less. You've probably heard that before. Maybe you have. I'll say it again. Humility is not so much thinking less of yourself as much as it is thinking of yourself less. It really is taking our rightful place before God and others. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5 again. 1 Peter, we had our scripture reading there. 1 Peter chapter 5, which addresses somewhat here the function of the church. In the first few verses, it talks about the responsibility of leadership. And in verse 5, it begins to talk about the responsibility of all in the church family, where it says, verse 5, Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be cold with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And so, first of all, it says, before others, we are to submit. And that's kind of the same idea being promoted in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Uh, submit means to, to, to prefer them first, and also maybe it means to put yourself under their needs. To actually invest your life in the, in the well-being of others and invest in them, however that God may lead you to. And that might involve prayer. It might involve personal contact. It might involve labor. Who, who knows what, how it might, what might be involved? But that's what God says. We're, we are to be so engaged with, with the mind of Christ that it produces this kind of humility. And that's how God describes humility, with the idea of submitting to one another. That's the description here. Because God resists the proud, those that are so full of themselves and rarely think of others. Now, before God is mentioned here, he says, Therefore, verse 9, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And again, humbling ourselves isn't a matter of beating ourselves up to death because we're such wolf, woeful sinners, though we are. It's, it's just taking our rightful place before God. It's recognizing who we are, that we are sinners who are needy. We need you. We just saying that, I need thee, oh, I need you. Well, the true heartfelt attitude before God is that's a reality. I need him every hour of every day. That means I search his word for the decisions I should, I can, I'm going to make this week and for the right attitudes and the right perspectives and the right priorities. I seek his face because I need him. It's submission to God, actually, which comes first. That's why he says, therefore, humil humble service in the church family is predicated on the therefore, verse 6, humble yourself before God. Recognize why you are here. First of all, recognize your need, that we are needy. We need him every hour. And secondly, recognize what he has for you. He says, be like Christ. And Christ didn't come to be, be served. He came to serve. And it's, it's taking our rightful place. That's what humility is. It's not about always seeking our best. And that's why so often Christianity is misguided when their sole basis of decision in decisions in life is, what's it going to do for me? And I'm not saying when a person picks a church that they don't want to be ensure the fact that the church is true to God's word and people are seeking to serve Christ together and growing in Christ. And that's good for us. But it's not about me. You know, I have a, a believer who I meet with regularly, a young believer, and he, he's heard this somewhere, but he 
reminds me in our conversations that it's not about me. Simple, isn't it? We can kind of close the Bible, go home, and think that's what God's saying to us. It's not about me. Instead, it's about how God would use me in the lives of one another. And that's where fulfillment's going to come from. I'm here to serve as Christ would serve, and that's the mentality God wants to install in our minds. And so we must be willing to be humble, which means thinking less of ourselves. You know, when Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth, and we recognize in that context in Matthew that it probably has a direct application to the Jews in the coming kingdom. But for you and I, simply, I think it kind of means the meek get it. The meek understand. The meek, those who aren't always promoting themselves and asserting themselves and seeking their way in self-fulfillment, they come to understand that the secret to fulfilling a fulfilling and joyful life is to say with Paul, not I, but Christ lives in me. That's what we're talking about here, isn't it? The sharing of the life and mind of Christ every day is to deny self and to, and to submit to Christ. You know, in Galatians 2.20 where that is stated, for I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That verse is a verse of freedom. That's a declaration I've been freed from the bondage of self. And that's where sin finds its root, by the way, is gratifying self and promoting self and seeking self. That's the, that's the hunger for sin. That's the appetite for sin that we have naturally. In Galatians 2.20, says, I've been crucified with Christ. I died with Christ. I no longer have to be enslaved to me first. It's an enslaving thing, God says. It's a destructive thing. It's really, you know, even secular psychologists recognize that the number one contributor to marriage problems in life is selfishness. That's, secular science recognizes that. And God says it throughout the pages of Scripture. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been freed from that. And in turn, I can find the greatest fulfillment in honoring and serving others. You know, in Hebrews chapter 12, where it talks, tells us to look unto Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That was his humility. The humiliation of Christ was the cross of Christ. In fact, Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that the first aspect of his humility was he partook of the flesh and blood. And that's really what Philippians 2 is saying. He humbled himself, became a man. That's the first step in his humility. And then the second aspect of his humility is he humbled himself to the point of death. He gave himself for us. So he endured the cross. He despised the shame. But you know what it says in that verse, along with that humiliation? Joy. The joy that was set before him. Now I want to think that joy has a name. It's yours and mine. I think you can put your name in there. If your name is not joy, that's okay. You can put your name in there because that's why he did it. For the joy of seeing you rescued and saved and delivered from sin, for the joy of redeeming lost mankind, he endured the cross. Which tells us that, yes, serving Christ and serving others can be difficult, hum humiliating maybe even seemingly from the world's perspective, but there is joy, greatest joy. And it's that joy that God is setting before the church in here in Philippians chapter 2. As you go back to verse 4, we jump over to verse 4. 
we find another do not. Where it tells us that H.E. looked not out not only for his own interests. And he's telling us, don't seek simply your own interests in life. Now, I like the way that's put because the Bible recognizes that we naturally look out for our own interests and we have our own interests to look out for. We all have jobs, responsibilities, and things that need to get accomplished. We have things that God has given us in life to enjoy, enjoy to the fullest. We have things that interest us, things that occupy us, things that, that consume our time. And, and, and it's not wrong to enjoy those things and to have those things. The, the, what God is after here is an attitude. An attitude driven by the love of Christ that directs our focus to others. To have the love of Christ in our relationships rather than self-love in our relationships. To seeing people as an opportunity rather than as an annoyance and an inconvenience in life. And that's what the love of Christ does for us, by the way, if I can go down that rabbit trail. Agape love seeks the best of others. That's what the, lo that's what the love of Christ and that's why John 3.16 says, For God so loved, he gave. Simple, isn't it? God loved, he gave. Simple definition of the love of God. He loved, he gave. And it's that love in our hearts, it's that love that's being described in this passage in, the, in these first four verses of Philippians chapter 2, though, though it's not directly ex explicitly described this way, it is the love of Christ that causes us to focus on the needs of others, and the betterment of others, the benefit of others. And the Bible makes it pretty clear that to grow in the love of Christ and in the mind of Christ incre would increasingly develop a servant's heart that is less focused on me and my wants and my needs and instead is focused on the interest of others. And that leads us to the second half of the verse, the do's. We saw the don't. Don't just look out for your own things. Instead, approach life with a balance. Also for the interests of others. Do seek the interest of others. And I believe it's a balance God wants us to, uh, to have in life, to enjoy all that God has provided for us, to pursue the things we're interested in, but tempered by an attitude of sacrifice. Because that's what's, that's what's submitting to another's needs, serving as another needs requires. It's a sacrifice that, that is willingly entered into so that we might serve and honor and prefer others. And that's what Jesus did. You know, in those verses, which we'll look at more in the future, verses 5 through 8, it tells us that he did, that Jesus laid aside his glory. He didn't cease to become God. That was his, in his best interest, to remain, to be God, wasn't it? But he laid aside his glory. The word emptied himself. The kenosis of Christ means he laid aside his glory and maybe his privileges. And then he humbled himself to meet our greatest need. He laid aside and then he served. That's what love drove him to. His love for you. His love we celebrate. He laid aside and served. Simple approach to our lives. Yes, there are things we occupy our days with. Things we must get accomplished and done. You know, we got to feed the kids and, and so on. But in that, God wants us to be ever to be willing to lay aside. Someone might say, well, you know, if I don't feed my kids at 12 noon, they're going to be they're going to suffer malnutrition. Can God take care of your children if he calls you to lay aside? 
Sometimes we forget. Sometimes we let our itsy bitsies drive the boat of our lives and forget whose father they, who, who really is their father, who loves them more than we do, who's able to care for them much above and beyond we can. Jesus laid aside something that was the most important to him, his glory, his, his standing at the right hand of the Father. And then beyond that, he, he moved with compassion. He humbled himself. He didn't dispossess being God. But he laid aside the expression of his glory in order to rescue us. It is this mind of humility, this glorious mind. I mean, these verses in verses 5 through 8 are a glorious thing because of what they accomplish for us. It is a mind we can have. That's the point of this passage. It's a willful thing. God says, let this mind be in you. It is what he's developing in us. And that's it's something God is ever at work in us to develop this kind of servant mentality that, that is a reflection of Christ. And that's the kind of church that glorifies Christ. That's why God here is first interested here in order to strive together for the faith of the gospel, let's get our act together as his children. Let's express this attitude of love in verse 1. Let's, let's accomplish this unity of purpose in verse 2. Let that be the, that which brings us together. And then let's prefer and honor and serve others in verses 3 and 4. And we need to be willing to lay aside. Sometimes things that are very important to us, things that we might be even worried about, if I can put it that way. We don't have to worry. Someone's going to tell me after church, but you know what I mean? But we can cast our care upon him for he cares for us. We can trust him with the details. And so God is seeking to develop this mind in us. And what a wonderful description of a church family that can experience the joy of Jesus. And that's why, as I mentioned earlier, Philippians is a book of joy coupled with a book of service because that is the joy that was set before Jesus. It is the joy God sets before us. And it's just opposite of what the world sells us, isn't it? The world sells us down the road of, you know, the greatest fulfillment and joy comes from the greatest accomplishment for things of self. That's the greatest fulfillment and joy. And there are there is enjoyment in the things God allows us take, to take part in. But if we do not approach those things sacrificially, then we become enslaved to them, by the way, don't we? We can become enslaved. If we just have to have them, if we, if we can never lay them aside, we become enslaved to those things. And there's really freedom when we're willing to hang on to the things of earth loosely, you might say, isn't there? Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 13, where I think Jesus sought to teach this lesson to his disciples, this idea of service. Remember that these are the group of guys that said, you know, can I sit at your right hand? I mean, they wanted to sit. Can we sit at the right hand in your coming kingdom? And Jesus has a lesson for them about self. And maybe they were thinking about the 24 elders in Revelation. And uh, men's Bible study, we were in that passage the other night, and one of the guys wanted to know who the 24 elders were who worshiped before the throne. Who were they? You know, there's some disagreement if they're somewhat Old Testament and New Testament saints. There seems to be evidence that they're New Testament saints, but the Bible doesn't tell us who they are. I'm not really bothered this person. He wanted to know. 
I says, well, you're going to have to wait for the rapture or go to glory before you experience who these 24 elders are. I mean, he thought, could they be current saints, past saints, New Testament saints? We don't know. Well, there's a couple of few guys in this group that wanted to be one of some of the 24. They wanted to sit at his right hand. Well, Jesus has a lesson for him. Verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, and supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. Now he took a servant's posture. That's what, exactly what this was. The common practice of foot washing was, was reserved for servants. And Jesus could have easily called a servant and said, hey, you know, these, clean up these dirty feet, will you? Because, you know, the streets weren't that clean. They were dirty and dusty. And besides that, besides all the animal feces and the bedpans that were thrown into the streets and all that stuff, that was not a pleasant odor that often entered the house on people's feet. So they washed people's feet. They picked up the defilement. And the servants would wash the feet. Well, Jesus took that posture. And they must have been sitting there wondering, what are they doing? Here's the King of King and Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe, the I Am, and he, gird, he, he, he dresses himself, he girds himself as a servant. Verse 5, he continues, he poured water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel which with he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you will have no part with me. And Simon Peter said, give me a bath, if that's the case. On my feet, on my hands, on my head. Now we're glad Peter was kind of uh, quick to the trigger and mouthy because it, his, Jesus' response to him helps us understand what Jesus was trying to picture on one hand. This analogy was the idea of cl cleansing from daily defilement. And what he, and, and, he, and he says, verse 10, in his answer, Jesus said to him, He was bathed, need only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. And so what he's telling Peter, he says, You don't need a bath, you've already had that. That's salvation. You've been cleansed from your sin. But you need cleansing from daily defilement. So we have this idea of the, the, of the uh, picture, as I say, of the believer who picks up daily defilement and the filth and offscouring of the world, if I can describe it that way, that needs to be cleansed. And by, in 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is not a salvation verse. That is a fellowship verse because look at chapter 1. It's all about fellowship. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. You need cleansing from the daily stink and stench of the world. And so we come to him and we accomplish that through fellowship. So that's the picture anyway. That's, that's, a, that's a, that, that Jesus is portraying here. So, verse 12, he's going to go on to the next lesson. When he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said, you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example, that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. He who is sent is, sent is greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so Jesus said, you know what I did? I served you. I took that posture of serving you and meeting, addressing your needs. And that's what he's talking about here. You ought to wash one another's feet. Now, there's a whole message in that 
And that phrase alone, what does it mean to wash each other's feet? Maybe it has a sense of, of the fellowship of the saints that helps lift each other up and keeps each other pure. We're, we, that is an aspect of the fellowship of the saints. But what Jesus is really after here is the example of service. And he reminds them that the servant is not greater than his Lord. And maybe that's because these men were going to become, were the disciples who were going to become the apostles who were going to lay the foundation of the early church and Jesus didn't want them to get full of themselves and to ask again, can I sit at your right hand? He says, it's not about me. That's what Jesus is saying here. You're here to serve. He says, when you come into church, you should come in, how was it described? With the um, laid aside his garments, his outer garments, and took a towel and girded himself. So when we all come to church, we should maybe come in, take our coats off and wrap a towel around our waist and take that posture spiritually, not, not reality. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, this is the mentality I want to develop in you. And these are the men who are going to have the authority to teach the word, to establish New Testament doctrine and lay the foundation of the church. And he wanted to be sure that they did so with a servant's heart. That's what he's seeking to accomplish here. And he says in verse 17, if you do, you'll have joy. Once again. If you do, you'll have joy. The joy of Jesus is, is being used of him in the lives of others. And so going back to Philippians 2, we have this description of really the joy of a church family. One who is expressing the love of Christ and concern for and support of one another. One who is, being, who is unified for, you know, around one cause, and the cause of reaching the lost for Christ. Verse 3, the mentality of preferring and honoring others. And then verse 4, looking out for their interests, actually getting up and serving and making a difference in people's lives. There's not a lot of room for self-promotion bringing attention to ourselves. You know, we always have to ask ourselves when we do something for Christ, are we interested in bringing attention to ourselves? We want people to know. I mean, how many churches have, you know, the, uh, what do you call them, bus or, or markers of people's, the big donors of the church because people want recognition. And Christians sometimes duplicate that. They want their name in the bulletin. They want to be noticed. They're, the way they do things, they want people to see them and notice them. Our desire is that ought to be that Christ be seen. That's what we're here for because that's going to help people. They need to see Jesus. And we need to take, we need to be su surrendered first and humble before God and realize that's why we're here, not to promote ourselves, but to promote Jesus Christ. And when we do so, and when a community or fellowship of believers does so in a local church, you have a little heaven on earth in reality. That's what you have. You have the mentality of Christ permeating the church family so that you have this kind of attraction, the spiritual beauty, the beauty of Christ seen in us. May we allow it to be so. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this, these instructions, Father, and um, though they're uh, simple instructions, we know we even think of the acronym of joy, Jesus and others, and yourself last. But Father, doesn't always express itself in that way in our lives. And Father, we pray that you would continue to teach us and that we'd be teachable that you continue to humble us, that, we're, that we'd allow you to humble us, that we'd take our place before you, that we'd find great joy in having your mind 
in being used uh, by your person to, ex to show love and compassion and concern and service towards others. Thank you for this great privilege. May it dominate each of our lives. May you make these things real to us. Now we pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.